welcome to a new episode of Time to Shine. This is your host, Oscar Santolaya. Time to Shine presents you interviews with successful public speakers who share their experience and secrets with you in a weekly podcast. Hello and thank you for joining this show today. Science will always surprise us and will often fascinate us. But speaking about science in a way that inspires people is more like a form of art. Let me introduce to our today's special guest. Dr. Sarah McKay is a neuroscience turned science writer who translates mind and brain research into simple strategies for health and well-being. Sarah blogs about neuroscience and speaks and writes about the brain to help others discover, understand, and implement the latest findings from the world of neurobiology. She has delivered her first TEDx talk last May in Sydney. Hello, Sarah. Hi, how are you? Thank you so much for having me. I'm really excited. <laughs> I'm really happy to have you here with us, Sarah. Could you start telling us a little bit more about yourself? Yeah, sure. Well, I think you, you gave a really great summary of, um, you know, who, who I am, what I do now and where I came from. Um, for those people who can't recognize my accent, I live in Sydney, Australia, but I was born in Christchurch, New Zealand. So I have a Kiwi accent. <laughs> I grew up in New Zealand. I um, always say I met and fell in love with the field of neuroscience not long after I left school when I started at university. I was really inspired by many neuroscientists of my generation when I read um, the book by Oliver Sacks, the man who mistook his wife for a hat. I think he really inspired a whole generation of neuroscientists. And sadly, we, we lost that wonderful um, neurologist, writer and communicator just a couple of months ago. So he really, um, his writing really inspired me to take up the, the, the study of neuroscience. Um, I carried that through quite a number. I have quite a number of degrees in neuroscience, an undergraduate degree from New Zealand. I went to Oxford University and did a master's and a PhD in neuroscience then. Now, when I did uh, my degrees about 20 years ago, the field of neuroscience was very, very new. Not a lot of people even understood what the word meant when I said mm. neuroscience. And for a while there, I used to think perhaps it was my accent. People thought I was saying neuroscience and asked mm -hmm. if I was studying the science of Europe. But I've since found out there's another neuroscience writer around who is a Welshman. So perhaps his Welsh accent also threw people off the track. Um, I, I like to sum up the work I did for my PhD thesis as Nature, Nurture, and Neuroplasticity. So I was interested in how the uh, connections in the brain wire up during development and how they change over time in response to experience. But of course, back then, we, we also, you know, the word neuroscience was so new, we certainly did not use the word neuroplasticity. Um, and both, both the field of neuroscience and this word neuroplasticity have really entered the public consciousness, perhaps in the last five, five to 10 years. So I, um, always intended to, to work as a neuroscientist doing research, but I always, all the way through my PhD and then a bit later on my research career when I moved to Sydney, Australia, I always had a little bit of me that felt I wasn't really following my true calling or really following my passion. Mm -hmm. Absolutely loved and adored the world of neuroscience, but felt that my place in this world was as a as a 
a communicator of science rather than someone who who was busy working away in the lab doing the neuroscience research. So about eight years ago, I took the big, very scary leap from working as an academic, working as a neuroscience researcher, which I'd done for about uh, six years after my PhD, to um, set up business as a science communicator, specialising in neuroscience communication. That's what I've done for about the last eight years. So I speak, I write, and I consult about all things mind and brain. I write a blog about neuroscience. I've got various articles that I write for a lot of different publications. I consult, and more recently, I've started teaching an online course in neuroscience that helps people understand more about the field itself and find ways that they can begin to integrate findings from neuroscience research into their life and work. Mm -hmm. And in which moment, I guess, when you already took this new career as a, as a freelance and communicator, that's when you mm -hmm. became more involved in speaking, correct? Um, look, I think when you work as, a, as an academic researcher, you're always required to do quite a bit of speaking and in fact even even when I at the high school I went to when I was growing up in New Zealand we had to do quite a bit of public speaking all of the way through that so I've always been very comfortable standing in front of an audience uh, speaking and particularly explaining um, scientific principles one of the very very first public talks I gave even as a high school student was looking at um, Alzheimer's disease which is really quite funny when I look back on it now. I was about 15 at the time. So, you know, I was pretty on I was pretty on purpose from quite a young age. All the way through my academic career at various points, I had to give talks, but I never uh, thought of that as a possibility of a career. But I certainly always really enjoyed it and did love taking these really complex scientific ideas and breaking them down into simple um, explanations that anyone anyone could understand. It's really perhaps only been in the last three or four years of my business that I've been asked to speak more and more and more. Uh, it was almost by default in a way. It wasn't, it was never really um, an intention of mine to set up business speaking and talking about neuroscience, but it's kind of happened in quite a lovely organic way. And um, I've had just various opportunities come my way that have meant I've had to learn a little bit more about this, this art of talking about science to the general public and to non-scientists. Mm -hmm. Oh, yes, Sarah. And I have watched your TEDx talk you had earlier this year. Mm. The title is Indulge Your Neurobiology. And yeah, definitely you show mm. how you have already managed to explain the, the things about the science, neuro, neuroscience in, in very easy way. I really enjoy your talk. So I would, <laughs> I would like you to tell us a bit more about this journey, how How was your journey? How it started, and what were the challenges you had? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, it's. It, it, I really do think that giving a TED talk is that there's no other way to describe it apart from journey because it's not just about that. You know, thirteen, fourteen, fifteen minutes when you're standing up on stage. I've always been an absolute huge fan of TED, TED, TED talks, TEDx talks, ever since I first heard about them and started watching them. And I had never had on my. Um, radar that giving a TED talk would be anything that I would be capable of. I had had people say to me, oh, I can imagine you doing a TED talk. Mm -hmm. And I had 
perhaps had the inkling or, 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 you know, the thought had crossed my mind, gosh, wouldn't it be amazing to give a TED Talk? But I had no plans to give a mm-hmm. TED Talk. So it was April this, uh, March, April earlier this year, 2015. I sat down at my emails one evening. I put the kids to bed, opened up an, my email, and there was an email from the TEDx organisers, Northern Sydney Institute here in Sydney, inviting me to give a TED Talk at their TEDx coming up. So that was really how it began. It was, you know, the biggest surprise of, of you know, the year. Um, my first thought was, oh, my God, I get to give a TED Talk. And my second thought was, oh, my God, I have to give a TED Talk. <laughs> so I was equally excited and equally um, not frightened, but um, I, I realised what a big undertaking it would be, what an amazing opportunity it was mm-hmm. and how I was just I was incredibly excited but very nervous all at the same time. I think the biggest challenge was the fact that from the day they emailed me until the TEDx mm-hmm. event was about five weeks. Mm-hmm. So I didn't have a lot of time when I'd been asked out of the blue to prepare. I had no idea in my mind what I was going to give the talk about. I spoke to them on the phone the next day. I sent off a very quick email saying, yes, 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 I'd absolutely love to do this before I kind of gave myself a chance to talk myself out of it and then realised, well, I've got the opportunity now to, you know, shine on stage or shine on a global stage or make a complete fool of myself on a global stage. So <laughs> I talked to them the next day. Um, they they pitched a couple of two or three ideas to me that they thought maybe I could talk about. None of them I was interested in at mm. all. Um, and I'm a bit of a, you know, I'm a bit of a nerd, a bit of a quick study, a bit of a, you know, I'm a researcher at heart. My my top strength is, is love of learning. So after I spoke to them, the first thing I did was download a couple of books onto my Kindle on how to give TED Talks. I started Googling around, um, looking for blogs and articles written by other TEDx speakers um, and just really delved into the world of how to give a TED Talk because I knew I didn't have a lot of time to come up with my talk, let alone come up with my topic. So, you know, I, I kind of pushed all of my other projects aside and I was in the fortunate position that I was able to do that at that particular point of the year and just devoted myself to becoming a really quick study and how to give a TED Talk and how to come up with a topic pretty quickly. So I, I had watched so many talks over the years. I understood the that it had to be one idea. I didn't want it to – I didn't want to come up with an idea that was too serious and mm-hmm. – um, I wanted it to be broadly appealing. I knew it had to be about neuroscience. I wanted it to be a really simple, catchy idea, but I didn't want it to be really heavy and preachy. I didn't want to get up there and tell people what they should be doing to make their lives, you know, to make their brains healthier. Or what. I, I wanted to kind of have a bit, have a bit of fun with it. And I also knew that I wanted it to be about a particular topic that I was very passionate about. And so I kind of had a bit of a think through what blog articles I'd written on my blog that had taken off, ideas that I knew other people liked that I was passionate about. And pretty quickly, I came up with the idea of giving a TED Talk about the neurobiology of the afternoon nap. Because I'm a big fan of afternoon naps. I have a 20-minute afternoon nap most days of the week if I can. Um, I call it indulging my neurobiology. I, I submit to my circadian rhythm and that need to have a quick nap at that time of the day. And so I crafted my, my TED Talk around the idea of napping is indulging your neurobiology, 
taking time out from the world, slowing down. And I looked into um, a lot of the research that's been done on afternoon naps and what they, you know, what are the benefits of them. And so the benefits that I included in the talk were that it improves your memory. If you um, have a quick nap, if you learn something, have a quick nap, then your memory of what you learned will be enhanced. I looked at how it's used to spark creativity and give new insights um, and ways of thinking more laterally around an idea and also the idea that a nap helps you smooth your your rough emotions. And I, with each of those three ideas, I pulled in a scientific study and then put a bit of a personal story around each of those ideas as well and managed to, to kind of craft a, a talk around those ideas. Um, and on, on, on top of all of that, I have to give absolute amazing full credit to um, a coach that I also worked with. Um, I knew someone who was a speaking coach. I'd worked with her before on some other projects and I also called her the day after Ted emailed and said, I need you. <laughs> I need your help. <laughs> um, I've been asked to do a TED talk and, and, and no, let's, let's work on this together. And she was an absolute amazing um, coach all the way through that process. So, yeah, pitched the idea to TED to the TEDx organisers, um, after initially saying to one of them, I would like to talk about afternoon naps and getting the response of, oh, okay, well, maybe we'll give you a five-minute slot. I realised I needed to pitch the idea to them a bit more and mm. I um, put together a, 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 you know, like kind of a two- or three-minute pitch about this brain hack that improves creativity and memory and smooths your emotions. And, and it's the 20-minute afternoon nap. They absolutely loved it and... So then I, I basically went through the process of preparing for the talk and, and, and delivering it on the day. Mm -hmm. And do you practice this 20 minutes nap every day? I, I, well, I don't, every, you know, if, if I feel, if I'm at home, I work from home, so I'm pretty fortunate to mm. be able to, um, you know, I don't have to ask anyone for permission to do that. <laughs> if I get to that kind of early afternoon slump, you know, 1.30, yes. 2.30, 2.30, I feel a bit sleepy. I will stop what I'm doing. I'll go set my alarm for 25 minutes because I know it'll take me five minutes to fall asleep and mm -hmm. I will have a 20-minute nap and I wake up after that short nap and I feel like I've got a second day. I'm, I wake up ready to go. Yeah. The other little hack that I sometimes, brain hack that I sometimes do is I have a cup of coffee before I have my nap Whoa. because there's some similar biochemical changes that happen in our brain when we drink coffee and when we nap and kind of like it's kind of like a double whammy <laughs> if you have the coffee before the nap you wake up and you're you're ready to to smash out another day and mm -hmm. be creative so, with your memory <laughs> feel, yeah <laughs> so after if you have a coffee just before the nap when you wake up after a nap you feel like a like a new morning second morning of the day okay <laughs> yeah yep. another absolutely. trick <laughs> yep absolutely i don't i didn't talk about that in the TED talk mm -hmm. but that is that is one of the um the hacks that I do. Another hack, yes. Yeah. And you, it's, it's amazing. You had only five weeks for your preparation, but when yeah. you re when you received this email, how long it yeah. took you to say yes? <laughs> About three minutes. Awesome. <laughs> <laughs> I said yes before I gave myself a chance to talk mm. my way out of it because I knew that it was an amazing opportunity. Absolutely. I knew I could do it. Um, I knew I had it in me. I knew I had the right people to help. I knew I would be able to come up with an idea, and it, and I just love a, I love a challenge like that. So, mm. you know, I I said yes, um, 
before I could give myself a chance to rationalize my way out of it and come up with (laughs) all the reasons why not to do it. Um, And then, you know, five weeks is not long, but I just cleared the decks and I did nothing for for those five weeks except prepare for for the talk. So once I'd written my script, I then – um, with with the with the wonderful help of my my amazing speaking coach, my speaker's little secret, she um, she one of the she taught me a number of amazing techniques. But one one of the things that she said was that the more you practice and practice and practice that talk, you'll get it into your body, you'll get the talk into your bones, mm-hmm. and then you can be present on the day. Mm-hmm. And the art of giving something a TED talk is a little bit different from a lot of other talks, and that you you. You know, it's very well rehearsed and you it's almost a little bit like performance art in a way. Mm-hmm. But but the strategy we used was that if I practiced that talk so that I didn't have to think about what I was going to say next, then I could be really present and be in the moment and be there for the audience and engage with them and feel very natural. So I practiced, practiced, practiced the talk. I pra- perhaps said it maybe 50, 60, 70 times Ooh. once I'd nailed the exact script. Because I wanted to get to the point where I, it was so embedded in me that when I spoke, it sounded natural. And it sounds a bit counterintuitive, but I mean, someone on Broadway gets up and does the same, can perform the same play twice a day for a year. And it still seems when they do it, it's the first time they've done it. So I kind of followed a little bit of that classical technique that if the the talk was in my bones, I could be spontaneous in, in a way on the day. Um, and we also used, um, I used quite a lot of visualization as well, a mental rehearsal. So I rehearsed how I wanted to feel in the morning leading up to the talk, mm-hmm. how I wanted to feel standing in the wings, how I was going to feel walking out onto the stage to stand on that red dot, how I was going to feel with my feet on that red dot looking out on the audience. I rehearsed over and over and over that in my mind. I used a lot of relaxation techniques before I did that mental rehearsal and I rehearsed my feelings, um, which is a very, you know, is a very powerful technique and also has a very strong scientific basis, interestingly enough, that, you know, that re- rehearsing something to our brains is, is, is very much the same as performing it in reality. So I, I rehearsed mentally a lot of my emotional reactions around that and I rehearsed feeling happy and calm and relaxed and excited and the really amazing thing was on the day when I gave the TED Talk, I woke up that morning and I, I, was, I was excited and I felt anticipation, but I felt no nerves in any kind of negative crippling way. Um, and when I walked on that stage, I, I, I honestly felt like I'd done it 20 times before because mm. I had practiced how I felt, how I wanted to feel walking and standing on that red dot and looking out at that audience. And, and it just felt very natural and, um, and I felt, the way I wanted to feel, like which was happy and calm and excited and engaged, it was, it was, a, it was, it was a pretty magic moment, and it, you know, it, it went down ex- exactly how I had practiced, you know, practiced in reality and and practiced, visual, you know, by visualizing. Well, well, congratulations again for your amazing TEDx talk, and I definitely agree. I definitely agree with uh, what you say that um, you have rehearsed so many times that. It becomes more natural, right? So yeah. And you yeah. have also, <laughs> you have also told us that that, that has a um, scientific proof, right? Yeah. 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 Sure. It does. It does. I think the only, the only perhaps thing you have to be careful about is when you rehearse it over and over and over again, is you can end up, you know, I tended to end up using the same speech pattern 
and the same intonation. And that can end up, I think, sounding a bit um, stale. Mm-hmm. So my coach was getting me to do um, – her, na- her name is, is Laura Huxley, by the way, Speaker's Little Secret, just you know, to give her, her props because she was amazing. Mm-hmm. Um, she would get me to rehearse in a really angry voice and then mm-hmm. a really excited voice and then a really sad voice so that I wasn't using the same tired speech patterns over and over again. So that was kind of part of it as well, which is already kind of classical – um, you know, theatre techniques mm. really that we used. Hmm. And Sarah, now that you have this experience with TEDx, mm. with TEDx talk and other other speeches, presentations about your your topics about neuroscience, mm. could mm. you tell us what are the most important elements of an effective talk about scientific topics? Yeah, sure. Look, I I really don't know whether there's anything different about giving an effective talk about science and there would be about giving an effective talk in any other way. I think one of the most important things to think about before you give that talk is, you know, who are you speaking about? You have you ha- you you're naturally going to go in with an idea that you you want to communicate, but who are these people listening and why is what you've got to say worth worth their time and how can you you know, um, in a way, respect them and, um, you know, deliver something to them that makes their time that they've given up to listen to you worthwhile. And I don't think that that differs from whether it's, whether it's science or science or anything. I think, um, there's probably three, three kind of keys that I, I would always think about. And this probably also relates to writing about science too. Um, the first is that it has to land emotionally with someone. It doesn't matter whether it's a really dry scientific topic. You have to be able to hook people in with some kind of emotional story. And that's what I did in my TED talk. I started off talking about um, my experiences of research and how it really, you know, it tired me out and wore me down and made me question why I was doing what I was doing. And I and I think any any scientist um needs to remember that emotion is the is the strongest way into um, someone's understanding, finding a way to make a story land is, is to hook someone in emotionally, whether it's um, tapping into an emotion they may be feeling or sharing an emotion that perhaps you were feeling. Um, so that emotional hook is a, is a really good way to sort of start and prime people to want to, to listen more. Any complex scientific idea um, should never be dumbed down, but there are lots of ways we can make a complex idea simple. We can make any complex idea simple without dumbing it down. And I know a lot of scientists really struggle with, with differentiating the, the two. We don't need, when we're talking to a non-scientific audience, to have a caveat for every single thing that we say right. And that's mm-hmm. the problem that a lot of scientists have. They feel like they have to have a, a caveat and an explanation of the explanation about why they've said what they've said and back every single thing up. I think you can be really simple and clear um, without dumbing things down and without always having to take that explanation that one step further, one step further, people people will get a little bit lost. So you have to really kind of um, distill down the the main kind of the main sort of scientific points, the main points of any talk into perhaps, you know, three main chunks or three main ideas. Um, so keep it simple and don't worry too much if they're not your scientific peers about mm-hmm. having an absolute scientific proof for absolutely every word that you say. And then the third thing, which perhaps ties into what I said at the beginning, it has to be relevant and it has to be 
not always actionable, but there has to be something that the audience can either feel or go away and do mm-hmm. with that information. So um, it's pretty easy for me with what I with what I do talking about neuroscience. I'm talking about the mind. I'm talking about the brain. I'm talking about health, about wellness, about how we can um, use neuroscience to improve our lives. And I always try and bring it back and think about what about what is what am I talking about that's relevant? What can people go away and do with this information that I've given them? Um, and really, I think if if I think these are the most important elements of an effective talk about science an effective way of writing about science, they're probably techniques that, that I imagine lots of speakers use when they're talking about any kind of idea. Mm. Well, excellent points. Mm. Sarah, now now I will make a question that might sound very controversial to you, but yeah. what you dislike the most of a typical scientific talk? <laughs> I think... I think the thing that as a scientist that you do is you spend so many, you know, years, not just hours and days and nights and weeks, slaving away at your particular topic that not that many other people in the world are working on because that's the nature of science. You're you're working on something unique. It's very special to you. Um, you are so excited with the opportunity to put that idea out there. It becomes a very one-way mode of communication. It's... It's you're pushing that idea out with little acknowledgement or respect or thought about what it is that the audience is receiving from you. So instead of thinking about what they need and what information might land, you're just thinking about pushing your story out there. And I think that even when I, when I was a scientist, even when I was listening to talks by other fellow, fellow academics who were perhaps working within very similar fields to what I was in, so often I would struggle to understand what they were talking about and why it was relevant and why it was interesting. There was no, obviously, scientific talks in general are um, unemotional and they're rational and they're sceptical and, you know, we're talking about the scientific method and um, that's part of what science is about. But I think scientists so often didn't forget that no one is going to be as interested about their topic as they are. And they so often forget that they're speaking to an audience who isn't as interested as what they are. So they're, 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 they're completely forgetting about finding ways to make their message land. They're forgetting about the audience. They're so busy thinking about the subject matter itself and pushing that message out. That drives me crazy. It drove me crazy when I was a scientist. I used to think the problem was that I couldn't understand mm. <laughs> most things. I would sit there going, well, this is my field and I must be, I'm obviously a stupid scientist. I'm a stupid neuroscientist because I don't know what you're talking about. The problem wasn't that I didn't know what I was talking about. The problem was they didn't think about making it simple and interesting and relevant and even maybe, you know, trying to hook me in emotionally with a, maybe even a story. That's, yeah, that's, yeah. The, that's the problem I see with uh, a typical scientific talk. Some scientists are amazing communicators. They're not all like that. But the typical scientist probably yes, is. Yes. <laughs> yeah, that's correct. Now switching to the opposite, to to really good ones. Have you had role models as very good speakers from the scientific world? Could you tell yeah, us? Yeah, well, sure. Even before I gave my my TED talk, my my absolute favorite TEDx talk was by Kelly McGonigal, who is a health psychologist who gave a talk called How to Make Stress Your Friend. And she comes from a very similar kind of school of thought to me. She she works more within psychology, whereas I work more within neuroscience, but sort of similar mind-brain ideas about how we can take learnings and findings from the, 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 these, the world of neuroscience or psychology 
and make it simple and actionable and relevant and, and fun and compelling and interesting. I absolutely loved her talk the first time I watched it. I've watched it many, many times. And when I got invited to give my talk, I took a very scientific approach to it. I downloaded the transcript mm-hmm. of her talk. I broke it down. I wrote notes. I was like, right, this is what she says in the intro. This is when she talks a story about herself. She's got three main kind of um, scientific points that she makes and she brings in different studies and this is how she introduces the idea and this is where she adds humor. And I broke it down like that and I modeled a lot of the structure of my talk on on hers because I thought, well, I loved her talk. So, yeah, she she's, you know, she's, my, she's one of my main role models in terms of speaking um, from the scientific world in a really amazing way. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's uh, was an excellent approach from you that uh, you download the script and really analyze. It's not definitely yeah, that yeah, is scientific <laughs> approach. <laughs> it's um, from you might sound a scientific approach, but I think it's uh, it's a good approach from everybody from any topic, right? To analyze others, like others yeah, can yeah. be can be like your mentors, even though you don't know them. You can analyze yeah. how they have um, written the the speech, the talk, and how they have delivered. Yeah, and I think there's a lot of famous speeches out there that people talk about, and, and I think there's even a TED talk about how the, to deconstruct other people's talks. Mm-hmm. But, but I, you know, I, I never found that talk particularly compelling. All the talks that they talked about particularly compelling. I, I had to break down my favourite talk um, from my favourite role model. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I, I think we can also fall into the trap of, you know, only looking at the talks that are upheld as, you know, the, the, the best talks ever given. And, and that wasn't what I did. I was like, right, I'm going for Callie's because I love her stuff. She's my girl. I'm going to follow her. her <laughs> that'll, that'll do me rather than this whole, you know, looking at some, you know, Steve Jobs or looking at mm. um, Martin Luther King or, or whatever. I, you know, looked at my favorite talk. Exactly. The ones that are really close to, to your passion, right? To what you yeah. Do. Yeah. Absolutely. And could you tell us now what keeps you doing this what is your ultimate motivation to be writing and speaking well look i just love like neuroscience is just my you know one my first love <laughs> and as i said i i i met and fell in love with it i read oliver sack's book and it just absolutely captured my heart and my mind and i just i my, my as i said my one of my top strengths is love of learning and there the new the world of neuroscience is broad and it is deep and I'm just endlessly fascinated by all of the research that comes out of there and, and what I can do to that and this thirst that people have to learn about it too. And I, I feel like I kind of sit in this, this absolutely privileged position between the science and between the public. And, um, and I just love that. I wake up every morning so excited by the, the business I've built and the career I have. Um, I, I mean, I, I just, I'm, I'm driven. I'm, I don't even have to think about what motivates me because this is just me being, I'm so on purpose. I love what I do so much. I just love this world that I get to inhabit. It's an absolute pleasure every day to do what I do. Wow. It sounds so inspiring the way you speak. <laughs> oh, thank you. Sarah, no. So I just love it. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. Sarah, could you now share with us your favorite quotation? Um, I think my favorite quote probably feeds in from what I what I was just saying is by um, a guy called Maston Kipp who writes a blog called The Daily Love, I think. Um, 
I read this quote from his, him a long, long time ago that says your your bliss and your purpose are the same thing. And and for me, that that ca- that captures what I do. My purpose in life is my bliss. Um, and I think it's a pretty. I'm I'm pretty fortunate. I know a lot of people struggle with this idea of finding their purpose mm-hmm. and their passion, and and they and they and they they kind of don't understand where they're meant to be going and what path they're going down. And and I I can't offer any advice apart from the fact that I I knew, always knew what I loved the most and have managed to build a career about it. So. Uh, around that so yeah my, my bliss and my, my purpose just happened to be neuroscience which is a bit odd but yeah I just indulge in it every day I love it <laughs> your bliss is your purpose right yeah absolutely Sarah now could you tell us one book that has particularly inspired you influenced you and is a good read for us what could you recommend Yeah, well, in terms of uh, from the world of neuroscience would be Oliver Sacks' you know, seminal work, The Man Who Mistook His Wife for a Hat. I suppose I'm going to end up recommending three here. Um, no, I'm going to recommend two. Oliver Sacks for neuroscience. For speaking, I have to say the one that helped me with my TED Talk was Talk Like Ted by Carmine Gallo. I think that's the name of him. Yes. Um, the nine public speaking secrets of the world's top minds. So I downloaded a few how to give TED Talk books and that that was brilliant, Talk Like Ted, just loved it. It um, helped me refine my idea and the structure and gave me some talks to go away and watch. And, um, yeah, in terms of applying those principles to, to any talk that that you would give about science, I think is, is, is yeah, is brilliant, loved it. I, and I read books all the time. I could probably recommend like 25 books, <laughs> but I'll stop. Okay, thank you. <laughs> Now, Sarah, could you share with us an exercise, something practical that we could do it weekly or daily as a routine to shine? Well, I think it would have to be indulging in neurobiology and take oh. a 20-minute nap if you so desire every day. Um, watch my TED talk. <laughs> you'll, you'll find out why. I, re- I really do believe that um, if you are, and uh, you know, you do live the kind of life that enables you to do that. It, I mean, it's transformative. I think it's amazing. I think it beats meditation hands down. Um, sleep is the f- is the foundation for mm. for health and for brain health. That would be my my tip to help you shine. Absolutely, I agree with that. I really like that doing. <laughs> Before I watch your your TEDx talk, I already agree with you. <laughs> yeah, it's way less stressful than meditating. <laughs> you can't do it wrong. Fall asleep and it's done. It's love. Feels great. You're not there like trying to question whether you're doing it right and wondering whether you feel enlightened or not, and not think about stuff. You just, you know, it's natural. You just kind of go with it. It's great. You don't need to ask for permission, right? <laughs> no way. No. Sarah, thank you very much. This has been a fascinating and inspiring interview with you. And could you finally tell us how we can learn more about you, follow you, how we know your blog or everything you are doing? Yeah, sure. Well, my blog is called yourbrainhealth.com.au. And I blog every every week or so when I'm not napping. Um, I am on Twitter at Sarah M. McKay, M-C-K-A-Y, 
And my online course in neuroscience where I teach people's you know, techniques and strategies to apply neuroscience to their life and their work is theneuroacademy.com. Um, and otherwise, I'm on LinkedIn, Facebook, Google me. I'm like articles all over the internet. So I'll be, I, I'd love, I love it when people get in touch and say hi and connect. <laughs> Thank you very much, uh, Sarah. It was a pleasure talking with you and all the best. Oh, you're so welcome. It was brilliant. Thank you for inviting me, Oscar. Dear listeners of Time to Shine, this is the end of today's episode. If you like our show, please subscribe to our podcast in iTunes, Stitcher, or for more information, visit our website, www.timetoshinepodcast.com. Welcome to listen to us again next week.